Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. Hi, and I'm Tim Cask. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast to find the greatest minds in the gaming industry and bringing them right here so you don't have to go looking for them. This week, we are very much pleased to have Tim Cast, a true gaming luminary on our podcast, who's going to tell us how his vision of gaming as it uh, starts now and goes to the future, is amazingly close to our own, which always pleases us. Tim, tell us a little something about yourself for any of the people out there who haven't been gaming for the past 40 years. <laughs> for how many years? <laughs> I think that's everybody. Um, I've only been gaming 50 years. Um, 51, I guess. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm Tim Kask, and um, I was um, the first full-time employee at TSR, and I started a little magazine called Dragon and Little Wars, and I was there for the first five years and got to ride the rocket. Right, and for any of you guys out there, any of you younger folk, we I don't know how many younger folk we have that actually listen to our show, but if you don't know what TSR is... Oh, God, are they that young? <laughs> oh, no, there could be some. There could be some. One of our hosts is that young. Oh, we do have one host that's here. Yeah, uh, TSR became was bought up by Wizards a long uh, some time ago. I, God, how long ago was that? About uh, thirteen years. Okay. Actually, TSR has reemerged as a uh, as a different company now, sort of. And I'm connected uh, with that one too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Luke and Ernie, um, Gary's Gary's sons. Uh, I think they headed that up, right, Tim? Uh, yes, they did. I had no idea this was going to happen. Jason Elliott started TSR Games. The, the trademark lapsed, and he snagged it, and then uh, under the umbrella of TSR Games, Gygax Magazine was born. Uh, Luke and Ernie and um, Jason are the three publishers, and then there's a handful of us, uh, other people that are involved. I'm just a contributing editor. I go out and get old people, of old guys from the hobby to write articles for us. Because I know them all, <laughs> the ones that are still alive. And some of the young guys, too, because our good buddy Jay Libya did an article on this last episode. Oh, yeah. Well, um, James Carpio is the main games editor, and he's much more in tune uh, with current contemporary games than I am. And, of course, I know Jay. We, we uh, have a wonderful party uh, every year at TotalCon in his suite. His room crammed with people. <laughs> Wasn't there some concern about calling the magazine Gygax? Because I remember there was some legal concern about from, from the Gygax family. I'll simply say that it was proven that they couldn't prevent two people named Gygax from calling their magazine Gygax. <laughs> Just leave it at that, okay? Yeah, that makes okay. sense. I don't want to pick at those scabs anymore. Right, right. So, um, so, so Tim's got, um. 
Tim's got uh, Eldritch. Um, I'm going to get this right because I always call it the wrong thing. It's Eldritch Enterprises, right? Is that right? Okay, Eldritch Enterprises, uh, which is a game company that he does with. It's with Frank, and is it just you and Frank? Frank Menzer, Chris Clark, uh, who's also known for Inner City Games, and Jim Ward, another. Uh, there's three of us are ex-TSR people, ex-D&D uh, people. And we uh, write uh, system-neutral adventures. Right, and this and what we're talking about tonight with cross-genre um, settings, uh, that's that's coming out of Eldritch, right? Yes, it is. Frank asked me to think about doing a source book that would make the period of Mesoamerica that I'm interested in, that I that I know very well, make that a playable campaign. Ah, okay. So um, when he asked me that, I think I could do that. I go, oh, sure. That's that that'd be relatively easy. It's just in my case, using more words than I normally do. Uh, and remembering that not everybody understands what I'm writing about from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, we're, I'm, we're looking at that. For sure, I'm going to do the adventure. Uh, in fact, I have, we have two planned that might be uh, dependent, or might, one might hinge on the other. Uh, and then I have a third and a fourth setting a little later in history, but still all in North America. I'm, I'm thinking of the one I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm calling the things time portals and the adventures will be transported to the uh, Yucatan Peninsula about 900 AD. Their metal will not go through. The, the most they will have metal is a single dagger with a blade no more than six or seven inches long, which will still be a marvelous, wondrous thing that many people will covet in a Stone Age society. Right. Because these people don't even use bronze or copper tools. All right, so this this is um, uh, still a very valuable thing. I'm not going to take the player's armor benefits away from them. I'm just going to give them really good leathers. Okay. They're going to find themselves here. They're not knowing, they didn't know they were going to go here. But once again, as I did once before, I'll keep the mission similar. I'll just spin their heads around and put them in a new place to do what is essentially what they were going to do before. Do A, do B, do C, and if that all comes together, do D. Mm -hmm. um, so that won't change. Their cover is that they're going to be traitors. Traitors were accorded almost diplomatic immunity during that period of time. Uh, as long as there wasn't an active uh, nasty war going on, everybody welcomed traitors. Nobody, uh, nobody picked on them. So I'm going to make them into be traitors. And they're going to be explain their differences being cl cloud people, which were legendary even in Mesoamerica. The, the stories of the cloud people had traveled up the peninsula and over there um, through trade. And when they go, all their all their gold and gems and silver and all this stuff is going to be changed into chunks of jade, uh, quills of gold dust, bundles of rare feathers. They'll have currency, but it'll uh -huh. all be relative to the society they're in. And then... Uh, about 850, there's three ruined cities that go down the peninsula from the Caribbean coast down. So they're going to have to go explore all three of these abandoned ruined cities to find pieces of the mask that they're going to have to go find to stop something horrible from happening. Oh, that's cool. Hey, John, that, that sounds like it's right up your alley. It's going to be all Mayan monsters, mm -hmm. all Mayan uh, deities. Uh, only stuff that you would find in the Yucatan Peninsula, 
jaguars and, and big snakes, you know, and stuff like this. Uh, I don't feel the need to have a lot of uh, European monsters in what is essentially a Mesoamerican setting and when I can use their own religious beliefs and their own uh, demons and uh, evil gods and that. And it gives me one great advantage. I, I hate it. Just hate it. When I hear somebody at the table go, oh, that's a bandersnatch. 11 hit dice. Does this, does that, does this three times. They know it already. It's like, nah, you're going to know nothing in these. You're going to learn it from the ground up on all of it. Right. And that's, that means role playing. That means asking questions. That doesn't mean drawing your, your, your wood and an obsidian chip weapon and just flailing in there. Right. Like you used to do with a sword or an axe. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I'm going to put them in armor. Uh, the Mayans actually had armor. Oh, they did? They fought good. those big mahaquitos, those things that looked like a, a cricket bat with jagged obsidian chips oh, yeah. on the edges. Yep. Well, they made linen vests, and they sewed them full of pockets that they packed with rock salt. Hmm. The rock salt dispersed the blow and absorbed the edge. Brilliant. Hmm. Cool. In fact, when Cortez came over, they saw these guys wearing them, so they started to modify them so they could wear them in the heat. Nice. So they were still, you know, 600 years later, they were still practical. Yep. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I want to educate them a little bit, expose them to some stuff they've never seen before. It's going to take a special yeah. artist to illustrate these because they have to be, they have to have uh, his accurate accuracy and relevance. I understand that's what you guys like to do, bend genres. We do. We're genre benders. <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan of the Mayan culture myself, and yeah, there are some really bizarre uh, Mayan creatures. And of course, there's a few, I can't pronounce them because a lot of the names are just... Yeah, yeah there are three times as many consonants as there are vowels. I'm going to have to put a pronunciation in on, on this. I love a glossary. The Mayan guard of volcanoes and fire. His name is like unpronounceable. Well, it looks like, yeah, yeah I know. I'm going to have a glossary in the back of how to pronounce all these guys' names. You can throw in some Aztec ones too? Well, actually, that was where I was going next. Some of the ah. monsters are going to be Aztecs. The pre-Aztec civilization of Teotihuacan were sending yeah. em emissaries, di diplomatic uh, missions. Uh, they sent, uh, what was his name, something fire-burning. And he uh, basically took over the Mayan uh, culture in the city of Tikal. Some of them will be war parties. Some of them will be traders. Some of them will be diplomats. Some of the diplomats will have a lot of soldiers with them. So there's going to be a lot of variety in running into the same things. And as traders, they should be able to talk their way through. Oh, yeah. They, they found stuff in, on, the, on the coast, especially on the coast. They find stuff that's been traded up and down both both uh, seacoasts, at least the Gulf of Mexico and up and down up in the Baja. There's been trade up and down the, the coast and down into um, Central America. So there's just, definitely was a lot of trading going on along the coastline. Well, they found pipestone from Michigan, the, the stuff yeah, they yeah. made the Calumets. They found that down in uh, Mexico City. Yeah. Now, that's, that's quite a distance to trade, quite a mm -hmm. distance. Making them traders gives them a perfect cover, and they'll have to role play. I've always thought that traders is the perfect cover for most kinds of interdimensional exploration because it allows you to be 
outsiders at the same time giving you an end to their culture because you have what they want. I still remember this one, oddly enough, is one we did a show we did a long time ago about Japan. We we had this conundrum where you have, you know, modern day uh, uh, people, and and the way Fringeworthy is geared, it's one in a hundred thousand people, and it's random. So um, you couldn't say, hey, let's get all of our, our our Asian people together, or or at least Japanese people together, and send them on this mission to to ancient Japan. Both of them, right? Yeah, both of them, right? You don't have that privilege. You have to send who you have. How would you know these like a, a white guy and like an African guy and and you know uh, how how would they go to? They wouldn't go to Japan. Well, well, you could. I I did some research on this. I did some research on this. Not before fourteen hundred when the Portuguese. No, no, this was um I forget when it was, but I I'd done a little bit of it was before all the samurai and stuff. So it was it was probably, whew, it was pre feudal. It's pre feudal Japan. It's around the eight hundreds. And back then, they were fine with traders. They would entertain them, much like you're saying. If you were coming into trade, they were fine with that. That'd be like the the only way you could come in. Well, that was pre-Mongol. Once the Mongols, the second time the Mongols attacked them, they said, that's it. Nobody else comes in. Kill everybody that washes up on shore. Except for a little Portuguese um, colony in one southern southern, you know, southern island. And, it was, and they couldn't really leave the city, literally. No, they couldn't leave the stockade. Yeah. It was a big, it was a walled city within the city. Then Perry showed up and took care of that. <laughs> yeah, Cannon, Cannon has a way of uh, convincing people to do things. Especially when you're wearing lacquered leather armor. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, how are you dealing with the fact that the Mayans were, because uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Mayan fan, I have several books. How can we put this nicely? The Mayans are druggies. They smoked cig- cigars that had enough nicotine in them to give you hallucinations. Why no? Uh, Along with the blood sacrifices that they would do. You can touch on that on the less savory aspects without dwelling on it. Touching on it should be enough to say, yeah, okay, I know it's there. But no, PTA mom, we're not putting this out to illuminate how they did the flower wars. And captured each other and bent you backwards and cut your heart out while it was... No, we're not going there. Nope. I'll generalize that, you know. I'm, I'll just say, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, you're slated for sacrifice. And leave it at that. Right. <laughs> we don't have to get into the details. You know, and Mayans weren't nearly as theatrical about their sacrificing as the Aztecs were. No. When, they, when the Mayans came in, they just killed all the royal family with axes and spears, threw their bodies in a pit, and buried them. Aztecs took their, pack, their 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 big prisoners back, feeded them, fed them nice, fattened them up, and then on the high holy days, marched them up the thing and cut their heart out and let their body roll down the 75 steps or however many steps are on that. Yeah, yeah the Mayans didn't kill every... Sometimes he would just kidnap them home for ransom. Except they took over a city. When they started their pouring states period, uh, mm-hmm. It did not pay to be any way connected to the royal family in a defeated city. <laughs> that was no. it. The ticket just got punched. John and Tim, you both um, have read a lot about this, and and I I have not, so I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, uneducated on the whole this whole period of time. How accurate would you guys feel? Have you seen Apocalypto? Yeah, it's about as accurate as any historical movie is when you don't actually do research on it, other than some reading some popular fiction books. 
not there's accurate. not a hell of a lot to research to, on that period of time. So he had a lot of latitude <laughs> to paint the picture like he wanted to paint it. Now, did all those people around daubed in three colors of mud every day, all day? Maybe they did to keep the bugs off. Maybe it just looks good on film. Right. Yeah. The thing is, is that you could ask the Mayan, how do you live in the, fo- in the forest? Because they still live in the forests. You know, the, the mines never disappeared. They just simply said, you know, heck with, heck with cities, heck with religions, heck with the personality cults that were involved with, the, with, with all this stuff. And we're just going to live in the forest, not do with civilization anymore. Hmm. So they were smart. Well, yeah. they were amazing uh, <laughs> agriculturists. Oh, yeah, I know so that. They managed to support three times the number of people on that cruddy soil than, mm-hmm. than you would think they'd be able to. They were just really genius. Yeah, they used that uh, that irrig- special irrigation where they would su- subjugate, they would divide the land into little squares, and basically between them would, would be irrigation. They would then grow plants in there, and they would basically, as the, plant, as the water plants grew, they would dredge them out, throw them in the land, let them decompose as compost, and, re- and reinvigorate the soil. And it was very, very, um, uh, very fruitful. But the trouble was, it required a lot of a lot of water. And when, when the droughts came, it didn't grow very well. <laughs> Which is why you'll, fi- you'll find all the blue holes and all the sinkholes full of skulls and dead bodies because they're sacrificing to get more, more cleaner water. And of course, where they're dumping them? Into their water, but you know. They were sacrificing them to chalk. Mm-hmm. Or ch- uh, uh, <laughs> It chalk. almost sounds like he's playing. <laughs> Actually, one of, the, one of the chalks. Because there was there were the four chalks, the you know the north, south, east, and west. Well, uh, Chalk had two hundred and seventy faces. Yeah, there's that oh temple God. where he's got the long nose. That's <laughs> It's going to be the mask of Chalk, is what they're going to have to reconnect because they found masks mm-hmm. with made as many as uh, one hundred and fifty pieces of jade made into these incredibly crafted masks. Huh. Yeah. So they're going to be picking up pieces of the mask of Chalk. Uh, as they proceed down through the Yucatan Peninsula. Cool. And I think, wasn't Corrin also one of Chalk's things? No, not, no. Chalk was pretty much rain, and um, I think he was also bloodshed. <laughs> they <laughs> all wanted blood. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, not not quite as bad as the Aztec pantheon. Jeez. But there is some overlap. Just like with the Greek and Romans, there's overlap. Quetzalcoatl was Kuklakan. In the Mayans, I believe. Well, they called him. Fe- they just called him White Feathered Serpent. Yeah, which uh, was I think Kuklakan means, or or Kuklakan, or uh, yeah. Hey, I think well, I've Kuk- go- I think I've been to Kuklakan. <laughs> I think I interviewed somebody that now. <laughs> that sounds like you're trying to say the name in the Irish uh, saga. I, I, you're not going far enough west if you mean Kublakan. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. maybe maybe it was Kublakan. <laughs> Kuklakan. They go all the way over to Asia for that one. Anyway, I'm, I, after I do that, then we're going to treat with the Aztecs. Then there's a there's a civilization in the center of uh, the United States that uh, very little is known about. They built a pyramid that's actually larger than the Great Pyramid of Cheops, and it's made completely out of dirt, and it's across the river from St. Louis. It's the Cahokia Mound culture, and they had an incredible uh, culture that lasted several hundred years. And then they just disappeared before the white man got here. Um, 
they just they they died out and left all these cities up and down Illinois and Iowa and Indiana, Missouri. So they didn't get taken out by smallpox. They just disappeared. There could have been a disease. Right. But it wasn't the European smallpox that came over and took them out yet. Okay. C-A-H-O-K-I-A. That's an awful lot like somebody we know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because we were talking about, you know, when, when did the people die off? And we, I did a quick, you know, went to the Wikipedia and the font of all knowledge. Right. And, and turns not out. Not always right, but yeah. Not always right, yeah. <laughs> knowledge is not the same thing as truth. <laughs> right. I had to tell students all the time, don't rely on Wikipedia when you're looking stuff up for homework. But use the references. If it has references, use those references for your actual research. It's a good place to start. Yeah. Excellent Col- place to start. But the Cahokia culture lasted from 600 to 1400 uh, Common Era. Right. So it's, it's in the range for the, uh, so the smallpox. When did they actually bring it? They didn't bring it before 1400. It had to be an indigenous plague or epidemic of some sort. What about Thor Heyerdahl's theory with a journey of Ra, the, the boat from Egypt all the way over to South America? I'm not one to argue with Thor Heyerdahl. I'd be more inclined to believe the giant Chinese junks actually mm-hmm. traded in on the western coast of South America because they've actually found stuff that would indicate that it got the, well, it got here somehow and it's from the other side of the Pacific so somebody brought it over to South America. It was anchor stones. The trouble is they can't date anchor stones. So the only way you know other than by other by incrusting incrustations of coral and so forth. So they're not quite sure how old they are. Because also, the Chinese traded in, in the 18th century, too, with junks and stone anchors. So, you know, there's a, there's a problem there. I mean, it's just as bad as the, as the, as the rogue of Roman uh, incursion and the Welsh and the, and the Jewish, you know, and uh, there's more evidence now, actually, for the Polynesians, though. Really? Well, see, that's the nice thing about writing fantasy adventures. I can write it the way I want it. You're and right. Nobody can, say, nobody can say that's wrong because it's my world. And we promote that. I mean, like with, with our podcast, we always talk about bringing the awesome. So it's like don't don't let the truth get in the way of the awesome. So if it makes for a good story and that's what we're telling, tell the good story. So, Tim, tell us, where'd that plague come from? Where? You're writing it, so – that's after the setting when I'm uh, that takes place well after I'm only going to put you down there in about the ninth century. It's the twilight of the Mayan age. I see. And these are time portals. Uh, I intend to you able to go back if you if the DM wants, you can go back. When you put the masks together, now you can go back. Take the mask into the second adventure over to the Aztec, go up the up the uh, landmass to the Aztecs. And complete something else with the mask, and then get to go back. All right, those two I can tie in, and I can tie them in historically in the same in the same decade easily. Yeah. But doing Cahokia, I can I can have them as traders in that period of time because they were trading down around that side of the Caribbean. But I I can't do much more than that with them at this point. And not remain historically true. I want it to remain historically true with just lots of neat, fantastical stuff. You know, it's good. Good for the for our listeners. What's really good about this is the fact that you're probably gonna have a lot of source material in there, 
So it's sort of sandboxed. Yeah. That's what I write. Tons of source material and my my partners are all the time getting on me for not showing them more ways. I call it railroading. Right. So this last one that that's in that's going into print right now, I I would say, well, okay, this this is the primary thing that could happen in this segment of the adventure. Now, if it were to happen, it might go like this, and then I write some flavor text. Right. <laughs> and, and so, okay, here's an example. It's not enough, I found, to just say, hey, here's all these ingredients. Throw them in the pot however you like and mix them up. No, i got to show them. And so that's been the hardest adjustment for me. Well, you know, that, that's good for art. For, all right, so for, for the, the TriTech uh, listener, the guy, people listening to this show, um, that, that's perfect. What you're writing is perfect because they will take that material, they will take all the source material that you have and make adventures out of it. They'll make their own adventures out of it. Now, our listeners will appreciate all of the source material way more than any um, uh, you know railroading type adventure because a lot of the the, the stuff that they, that they would use they're just going to modify anyway for their own purposes, which is why we love the TriTech system so much and why we love Fringeworthy, um, Fringeworthy being the, the game that actually sets all this up because you can take any source material from from any game and then you basically steal it. And and make it your own and, and throw an adventure in there. So this is this is going to be a fantastic book. Like you know Nick, do you know do you know Nick Nick Palmer goes to TotalCon a lot. Doctor Nick, they call him. Sure. Okay. So Nick wrote. Um, he did an adventure for. Uh, uh, he it had a Savage Worlds component, but it also had an O. Uh, I think an O. Um, o D and D component to it. Oh, was a D twenty? Okay, so it was D twenty. Um, but it was it was based in the the time of the pharaohs, so back in the the kingdoms of Sumer and Ur, and we we had him on because it was like that's great that that's great material for for our audience because we go you know our our people will go through a portal into that time zone and this gives them all everything they need to know to run an adventure in that era. So what what you're doing will be great for our listeners. They'll buy your stuff and play our game. <laughs> I'm, I'm so old school. I don't care where people get their ideas. I don't care, you know, how they steal them, uh, you know, as long as they're not trying to print them and make money off. Oh, no, 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 no. Right, right. No. Yeah. Now, we want to buy your product and use it in our game world. That's what we're trying to say. Yeah. That's fine. Um, I write system generic. We, we haven't, we've developed a gamer common, we call it, for statting out uh, stuff just to give you a, a basis uh, to uh, compare from. I write them. I don't care what they're playing. I don't care if they're playing Three Little Brown Books or if they're playing Pathfinder. In fact, uh, a friend recently told me that he picked my Snake Riders of the Air Dondo and ran a bunch of sci-fi players through it on a Gamma World Adventure or some MA or something like that. He said they just loved it. All these giant snakes and the swamps and all the things that they weren't used to. And they had a great time with it. He said he just ran it straight, no mods. And I said, wow, that's cool. I hadn't thought about that, but... You know, I, yeah. that's what we try to write is it's not going to adhere to one system. It's going to adhere to a, a school of thought, and that is have fun, guidelines, not rules, rulings, not rules. All right. But, right. okay, if that's too loosey-goosey for you, well, if it happened, then it might happen like this, and then I write a piece of flavor text. <laughs> right, right. That's the way we've been going in TriTech is going system generic some stats and some rules i wish it really was a 
universal system generic that ever you know we, they make it easier to you know you're you're playing Pathfinder, you're playing Fate, you're playing what you know one roll engine, you know, and make it and, and make sure it works in all three of those. I used to be in a, a game slash edition snob, and I still believe that what I play is the best and the purest and whatever. But I no longer care what other people play because if you're having fun, then it's over, then it's right for you. I may not mean I'm going to sit down and play it with you, uh-huh. all right? Because I'm not going to play 3.5 or 4 and, and rely on abilities and skills instead of asking questions and thinking like a rational human being. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the rest of it, I don't care what system you're playing. Here's, here's, an, here's a story. Because I, I try to give you the elements of the story. As the writer, I, I outline it. I name some characters. I named some potential events, but every group writes the story differently mm-hmm. than every other group. As they should. Yeah, I mean, one group goes left, the other goes right. I see that all the time when I'm running playtests at cons. I can run the same game four times and have four different outcomes. I can have them three of TPKs get their different ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's a talk for another time, is uh, the, the mindset of people playing at conventions. They all want to die like Vikings, weapon in hand. Right. There's always been the three different ways of solving problems. The stealthy way, the magic way, or the brute way. So, yeah, yes. it all depends on the bent of your character players. And if you're not careful, you get bent over the stone, cutting your heart out way. I have I have this reputation for TPKs, but I keep telling people I don't kill players. I just give them lots of opportunities to kill themselves, and they always seem to take me up. Players kill player characters, yes. That's right. I don't really kill them. I just sit yeah. there and roll the dice and drop the gavel. You're dead. Like at this next total con, Tim, I'm I'm running a three table event that comes together, so it's three different tables, and at the at the end of the first four hour session they will all be together in one place and they're all potentially going to be at odds with one another. So I'm kind of hoping for a three party TPK. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let two of the groups kill each other off. Then the third group kills off the remainder of the the second one. And then you kill off the third one. That sounds like a good plan. I am throwing a a lich beholder into the mix. So I'm kind of hoping that, That'll do the job. <laughs> um, I have an adventure out that there's a lich is imprisoned in a wall of force in a mausoleum. And every group that has found that area has let him out. Every <laughs> and every group that's let him out has died. Right. Because yeah. I have it written out. He, he comes out off and hasty. Right. Oh. Oh, yeah. Hasty. He's moving twice speed. And he has a mace of paralyzation. So he just kind of rides, and he's riding a nightmare. Mm. Well, actually, it's not a nightmare. I had to change that because we didn't want TSR crawling or wizards crawling up our ears. Um, but he comes out on this, this thing that causes fright. And he just has to go right down the middle. Doink, 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 doink. And he paralyzes him. It's amazing. It's just like they cannot resist the lure. There's a skeleton in beautiful silken embroidered robes that show no sign of aging. It's lacking a skull. 
Oh, they got to put the skull on it. Well, they're they're in an ossuary, and there's rows and rows and niches full of skulls and shin bones, and you know. And sure enough, they find a skull with the silver inlaid eyes, and they instead of speaking to dead and finding out. No, they stick it up there, it breaks the spell, out comes the lich, and they all die. Not one group has thought to speak with dead to find out that person gave their life to hold that bond. Right. And so they just broke it and made their death work meaningless. And, <laughs> nice. and they all died, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, so it's, it's, like, it's like Tomb of Horrors where you have to work at all the traps to make them go off. <laughs> Peter, I ran the uh, adventure that I told you about way back when we were talking about this culture before, where they come through the portal and they see the entire party laying on the altar, and there's a high, there's a priest that's just now pulling the uh, the dagger out of their heart. Right, their entire party's been duplicated and has died already in front you know, before they came through, and now now what do you do? Is it time for the second uh, showing, right? You use this somehow to your advantage <laughs> with this culture. Loot the bodies. Yeah. Oh, they did that too. So, Tim, you were talking about uh, before the show. You were talking about uh, something you're doing with amp- anthropomorphic thing. You, you said that uh, you had a really interesting story about how you came up with this and wh- how you developed that. I decided it would be fun to uh, take a per- group of adventure. Well, gotta go back even further than that. I came up with this idea of a children's, a series of children's books uh, based on mice characters that were all identifiable uh, to those who know as various classes of role players. Okay, uh, an ex-thief, an ex-fight, you know. And they never identified as such, but figuring if I sold these at conventions, it'd be role players that buy them for their kids and their grandkids, and so they'd think it was cool. Oh, cool, okay. I have these 10 characters. I wrote a biographies for them and everything. They were inspired by a set of miniatures I saw several years ago. And so I wrote up these backstories on all these 10, just based on what they looked like. I decided to give them some street creds. So I took a, I I wrote an adventure where a bunch of normal human PCs are given this task to find out why the food has been cut off from this very important town that provides this much larger city with regular shipments of food so they they're they're tasked with going across the plains through or around the swamp and go to the far edge of the forest and find out what's going on they walk out the back door of the tavern and they're immediately surrounded by uh, six foot mice with weapons and then they realize it's them oh I've run it a couple, three times. I've had the group attack each other <laughs> and, and have them holler out, you know, and hey, and, and you hear in James' voice, what the hell are you doing to me? You know, and then that's right. how they find out what they're doing. And so now they're tasked with getting through the barnyard and there's a dog and a cat and a rooster, but they're mice. They can run along the fences. They can run across the roofs. It takes an amazing amount of time for people to realize that. Huh. Long time, so they have to get through the barnyard, uh, through the through the corn uh, the the uh, wheat field, which is being um, worked by uh, uh, possums, and there's also snakes in there that are trying to eat the possums, and they certainly be glad to eat a mouse. Yeah, mouse, yeah, right. Yeah, and so now you know, and these are essentially giant snakes. When you think of a three inch mouse and just a garter snake, in D and D terms, that's a giant snake. So they have to get through that across the rice paddy 
And they always figure out they can make leaf boats. And so they pull their way through the rice paddy with little leaf boats using rice straws. Everybody's figured that one out. Except there's the rice paddy's full of hedgehogs, who when I was doing research, I find that love water. So they belong, they own the rice paddy. So they hassle everybody, you know, pay, pay me toll, or we'll come up underneath you and poke your boat full of holes. Mm-hmm. So they have to get through that. Then they um, get through the rice paddy. Now they have to go into the into the orchard and through the orchard into the bramble patch. In the bramble patch is the mouse city that's not sending food into where they came from. So the mission remains the same. It's just the scale that changes. Mm-hmm. And they can do all the things that they could do. I didn't, you know, make them lose their weapons and that. So they're all cartoon mice. They got swords and spears, you know, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so they're cartoon mice. But right. it was I, I crawled around on my stomach for the better part of two weeks trying to get the perspective of what it was like to be four inches tall. A lot of the art that I put in the adventure when I wrote it up, I self-published it with my old company. It's from the perspective of a mouse looking up at the jowls of the dog, looking up at the rooster coming down at him with the, the beak. Of course, the bad guy was a weasel that looked oh. remarkably like uh, Eli Wallach. And even when it was called, uh, he, I gave him one of Eli Wallach's bad, name, bad guy names. And he had four henchmen that were rats. And I named them after the four guys in the old Rat Patrol uh, TV show and gave them all Rat Patrol hats to wear in the, in the artwork. The people that, play, that have played it so far have really enjoyed it. Uh, there's a company in Brazil that wants to publish it in Portuguese. So it may be coming out in Brazil next year in Portuguese. We'll see how that goes. What's it called, Tim? All's Not Well in the Bosque Dell. All's not well. Huh. In the Bosque Dell. That's two words that mean friendly, nice town. Yeah, Bosque means nice. So what do you, what do you think, Bruce? Would this be a good uh, a mind transfer, transfer into a mouse? It certainly could be done. Well, I mean, see, now are you going to give them real mice or anthropomorphic mice that can use swords and spears? They would transfer into this world as anthropomorphic mice. Yeah, of course, that's getting close to Mouse Guard. It is. It's close to Mouse Guard. Yeah, sure. There's a little mice and mystics uh, aspect to, to it as well. I admire both games, and I admire the Mouse Guard series, and I, I like the fact that you get rewarded for playing your role. I think I think Mouse Guard is a is an excellent thing to uh, start youngsters out on. But, but what I'm thinking is is like for for, uh, for Frenchworthy, if you were to uh, you know when you do a mind transfer, I'm trying to remember is that a time set thing? No. Until you go back to the portal, you are in that mind. Let's say you transfer through. Uh, you could set the adventure up. You could do Tim's adventure, just like he's saying. You know, you got to get the. But perhaps the people who know where the portal are are in the city, and they won't tell you until it's resolved, until the situation is resolved. So you have to play these anthropomorphic mice, get this situation resolved to get the answer of where the portal is, so you can go back through it and get back to yourself. Yeah, that's one of the great things about the uh, mind transfer is it sends you to a nearby brain. But nearby is a very relative term. (laughs) It could be in a nearby city, and you may have no idea where that portal is. And you don't don't even have to know what's done. You step through the portal, and it happens. Yeah. You generally don't even know until you discover it. 
whoops, I have I have mouse hands. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a surprise, and that way a DM can use one in January and then do another entirely different one in October. If I make this into a, a two-parter, a two-in-one, I'm thinking more I'll do a one and then I'll do a one, and they, the, they can be linked together or played separately, doesn't matter. Then uh, the Cahokia will probably only be a single, a big one. And then um, I may do a, I don't know if I do a source, I don't think I'll do a source book for North America, but yeah, Mandan um, would be real interesting because there is some speculation that the, the Welsh Prince that sailed off into the West, somebody apped something. Either a History Channel or one of those channels had... Uh, who was first to America? Yeah, it was a two-hour show too. It's, it's a great source for you know if hey, adventuring in, in the past. It's, it, it shows a great great source of uh, speculative ideas. Well, the Mandans actually had uh, blonde hair and blue eyes, mm-hmm. and they're the only indigenous people in all of North America that had that. Other than, you know, there's always an occasional what a geneticist would call a sport. You know, um, a red-headed African-American. You, you see them every once in a while. That's not an African-American trait, but it is a, a genetic sport. Yep. There's no tribe in North America that even had genetic sports enough to uh, account for the, all the blue eyes and the blonde hair that the Mandans had. So... That's why they think that's where the Welsh went. And you can't even invoke Leif Erikson because it was before Leif Erikson showed up. Yes. They found a, 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 a structure built on the banks of um, uh, one of the big rivers in Tennessee that is made of stone in a method that was purely European. They have no idea what it was. It might have been a watchtower. It might have just been a shelter, but it was built of stacked stones that showed a method of, of you know, because it stood all those years. Right. So it wasn't just, you know, an Indian decided to stack a bunch of stones one day and make a stone house because they'd never seen anything like that at that period of time. And they found that, oh, six, seven years ago. They, they oh. finally figured out that, you know, wow, this is weird. Doesn't belong yeah. And then there's a, a potential for uh, Ogham. Ogham is it Ogham or uh, not Welsh, but um, Irish. Oh well, you can have the Tuatha Dé Danann and uh, the Fear Bog. <laughs> yeah, we could do that, but that, I I don't want to get into something. I'd rather get into something more obscure, like North American Indians or Central American Indian cultures. More obscure, more fantastical. Don't forget, there's a couple uh, unofficial tribes of Cherokee who, who claim that they're Jewish. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah that lost tribe thing. That didn't yeah. work out so well. So, the, yeah, the 13th tribe or whatever it is. Yeah, that's yeah. the last tribe. And they did genetic testing on them, and they, they basically were like 3% Jewish, which is about right for living and mixing with Europeans, yeah. Yeah, we're probably all 3% Jewish. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I might do one on... The Indians of Canyon de Chez in Arizona. My wife and I went there several years ago. Local people, the, the Navajo, claim that uh, the original Cocopelli's cave is in Canyon de Chez. 
that Cocopelli really was a person who then later became mythologized. And that's where he lived. And he, they even point out the cave and everything. It was pretty cool. Huh. I'm more into uh, the four ideas I've got right now, the Mayan, the Aztec, the Cahokia, and then the Mandan. You know, maybe if I get enough people to like it, I'll do some more. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. Yo, brothers, this was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.